Good morning. Good to see you this morning. It's good to be together. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new with us, great to have you joining us today. Um, hey, we're, we've been camping out all summer in this book called The Psalms, and we've been diving into this poetic book and sort of marinating on the deep, intimate connection with God that the scriptures invite us into and that the psalmists um, kind of ask us to step into. And today, um, Charlie Robinson is going to come and read Psalm 32 for us. Um, and as he does, I just want to encourage you, we're going to be in... Uh, uh, in Psalm 32, it's on page 446 in your Pew Rack Bible, if you have that, or if you have your own Bible, you can open there. But we're going to spend the next two weeks sort of diving into this area of confession and repentance and forgiveness and healing that God calls us into, and um, we're going to use that to become more and more people of faith, people who trust God deeply with their lives. So, Charlie, uh, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by the bit and bridle, or they will not not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. When my oldest daughter was about three, Amy and I were going out for the evening, and an older woman from our church was going to come over and babysit. And so in preparation for this moment, we did what every good parent does. We gave Skylar the pep talk. You know the one, right? Hey, tonight you're going to need to be on your best behavior. Whatever Miss Margaret says, you obey. And when it's bedtime, it's bedtime, right? We do not want to come home to get a bad report. Well, that night after a wonderful evening out, we came home to a bad report. Uh, apparently our beautiful young angelic daughter had refused to go to bed and had acted in such a defiant way that Miss Margaret never babysat for us again. Really undermined my preaching with her and her family. Um, so the next morning when Skylar came out of her room, when she stood before us, we gave her the interrogation, right? You know, what happened last night, young lady? Miss Margaret said that you refused to go to bed. You did not get a good report. What do you have to say for yourself? And this is sort of a defining moment for our daughter. She just stood there in front of us. She could tell we were extremely upset. She looks back and forth between us. Tears begin to well up in her eyes. And then she declared, I made a bad choice. <laughs> Those were her words. I made 
a bad choice. It's become sort of a slogan in our family. Anytime somebody blows it or messes up, every now and then someone will just stop and they'll just say, I made a bad choice. It brings some levity to, to this moment where you know that you've failed and you've been caught and discovered. And this morning we're talking about just that. We're talking about times when we have made a bad choice, times when we've blown it, when we've failed, when we've fallen short, when our thoughts and words and actions and lives have woefully missed the target of who God created us to be and who he longs for us to be. And our question today is how? How do we approach and deal with times of real failure in our lives such that they don't destroy us? such that they don't derail us, such that they don't embed themselves deep into our minds and hearts and souls, separate us from God, and take our lives off course. You see, because if you're human, if you're a human being, this is something you'll have to deal with. Every single person in this world has to learn to deal with failure because you will fail yourself, you will fail others, you will fail God. And sometimes in this fallen, broken world, failure will just come your way. Sometimes in an instant or in a moment, you'll make a a bad decision, a poor step, and you will enter into failure on your own. And sometimes you will even think and plot and plan to do the wrong thing to do exactly what you know God would have you not do, and then you will execute on those very plans. You will intentionally step into sin. You'll intentionally go against your Heavenly Father. And so this morning, we're going to talk about confession. And if you're like me, you'll be tempted to think that this is going to be a dark morning. Because confession, confessing our sins and facing our failures is not the kind of thing anyone really looks forward to, is it? I mean, none of you woke up this morning and thought, man, confessing my deepest, darkest sins, it's going to be a great day. I mean, think about the kind of emoji you would put next to the word confession. Smiley face or sad face. Yeah, most of us, when we think about confessing our sins, we think that this is a grim, dark, sad face sort of occasion. And yet... One of, if not the most striking thing about our passage today is how the psalmist begins. It's an entire psalm about the confession of sin. And this is how it starts. Blessed. Blessed is the one. And friends, this is significant because the scriptures talk about blessing as a way of life, as a way of living. Sometimes in our world, to be blessed or to be a blessed person is just sort of this short-term, trite thing that we say. It's just an instantaneous thing. And yet, in the scriptures, it is so much more than that. Jesus talks about being blessed in the Sermon on the Mount. And to be blessed, according to Jesus, is to have a full, rich, complete life of wellness and satisfaction. That's the life that he offers. That's the life that God longs for you to have. A life that's blessed. And right off the bat, the psalmist is unapologetically shaping our image of what the blessed life looks like. Because here's the truth. All of us come in this morning with a picture of it. All of us come in this morning with images of what the blessed life looks like. Of what it means to live The good life. There are images, there are pictures, there are memories, there are hopes and dreams and aspirations in your head. When I say, that would be the good life, all of us can think of things. Here's one of mine. Here's one of my images of the good life. 
I'm with my family and closest friends camping on a beautiful river. The water is cold but not freezing, definitely swimmable. And right across from our site is a pristine swimming hole, complete with a rope swing and cliffs of varying heights to jump off of into the water. Just up from our site is a, is a trail that hikes up to a pristine waterfall. And so after a long hike all morning to the waterfall, we jump in our tubes and float down river back to our campsite where we enjoy lunch, a quick swim, maybe a game of bocce ball, cornhole, where I dominate Pastor Matt in one of my favorite games, and, and then perhaps a game of Frisbee. After that, dinner. In the first service, I said, fixed by me, but I've decided to say, fixed for me over an open campfire and served. Um, Now, maybe some of you are thinking, nope, that is not it. That is not the blessed life. The blessed life, the good life for me has nothing to do with camping or the woods or tents. You're thinking something far different. And yet here's the point. We've all got pictures. We've all got ideas of what the good life, the blessed life is. And the psalmist today wants to infect your picture. The psalmist today wants your picture of blessing to be augmented just a bit. The psalmist today wants your picture of the blessed life to actually include your failures. Here's one of the reasons the gospel is good news, friends. The gospel is good news because it says that God takes your failure, your sin, not just your little sins, but your deepest, darkest, most shameful and embarrassing sins, that God can take those sins and failures and he can give you the blessed life in return. And through your failure, you can find blessing. Good news. The gospel. Listen to how the psalmist begins this morning. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. You see, right away, we notice who has the blessed life here, and it's not a perfect person, it's not a righteous person, it's not someone who follows all of God's rules in just the right way, it's actually a person who's flawed, who has failed, who has sinned. But they know they need forgiveness, and they know they have forgiveness. Right away, this psalm challenges two kinds of people. Two kinds of people in this psalm are, are challenged because these kinds, of, these kinds of folks find it very difficult to step into the blessed life. Maybe you'll find yourself relating with one of them. The first person this psalm challenges is the person who feels they're too good to need to be forgiven deeply. This is a person who subconsciously says to themselves, I'm not perfect. I know I do things wrong. And occasionally I need to be forgiven. I break the speed limit. I, you know, I do other things. But overall, I'm a good person. I don't do the really bad stuff like other people. I have my life together. I am managing myself fairly well. I'm doing pretty well. And friends, the worst kinds of people like this are also religious people. They're not just moralistic people. Our world is filled with people who are moralistic, who think that morally they are living up to the standard, that morally they are ahead of the curve. And then, and then it gets even worse when you throw a little religion on top. They're not just moralistic people. Now they're good Christians. 
You know, there's a, a story uh, about Jesus where he addresses this very thing. You may remember it. It's from Luke chapter 7. Jesus meets this religious leader named Simon. And Simon, he's a real nice guy. He's, he's nice to Jesus. He's interested in Jesus. He's cordial, but he's kind of distant. He's, he's kind of removed. He's a little standoffish. He's not sure what to make of Jesus. And then while Jesus and Simon are together, they run into this woman, a woman of the street. And we all know about her. And this woman, when she encounters Jesus, she's filled with passion and compassion and she falls on her knees and she washes Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. And because of this, Simon, the religious leader, is a little taken aback. And so Jesus, in an extremely poignant moment, says something to him. Says something to him that we can learn from. He says, Simon, can I tell you why she is more emotional and engaged and full of compassion and love than you? Do you know why? Do you know why she responds to me this way and you respond to me the way you do? And then he says these words. Here's why. The one who was forgiven little loves little. The one who is forgiven little loves little. And what he's saying is this. The most loving people, the most compassionate people, the happiest, most blessed and fulfilled people are the people who have been most forgiven. People who realize the magnitude of the forgiveness they deeply and desperately need. People who see the size of their sin. People who understand that they're not truly a good person. That although they can always find someone who's a little bit worse to them, at least in appearance, they do not make the grade on the moral code when they stand before God. And I guess the first question for us this morning is, how about you? How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself more like Simon or like the woman? Maybe a good way to tell is to just ask yourself, how do I respond to Jesus when I encounter him? How do I sing when we worship him? What's the, what are the emotions I feel when I gather with God's people in church to learn about and think about and sing praises to my, to my God? Do I look more like Simon or do I look more like the woman? Do I ever encounter Jesus the way this woman did? So it's the first kind of person. The first kind of person that's challenged is the person who does not really and truly understand the desperation and depth of their sin. But the second kind of person this psalm challenges um, is a person who's too bad to be deeply forgiven. See, if the first person is too good to be deeply forgiven, this person's too bad to be deeply forgiven. People who say things in their mind like, if you only knew what I did, if you only knew what I had done, if you only knew who I really am. You see, these are the kinds of people who understand the depth of their sin, but they don't believe forgiveness is available to them. They don't believe that they have the forgiveness of God. And this psalm will challenge this person as well. Psalm 32 says both of these kinds of people will miss out on the blessed life because the blessed life is for those who know the deep need of forgiveness that they have and they know that they can have it in Christ. They are the ones who are blessed. So how? How do we become one of these kinds of folks? 
the kind of folks who see their sin, understand the forgiveness they need and the forgiveness they have from God. First of all, we must understand our temptation to cover our sin, to become the kind of person that lives the blessed life. We must understand our temptation to cover. Notice in verse 1, the psalmist writes, Blessed is the one who is covered. And if you underline that word covered, friends, the the psalmist here is referencing a very well-known story. He's deliberately making reference back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 3. You know this story, you've heard it before. Adam and Eve are there in the garden, and they are what? They are naked and unashamed. But then what happens? They sin, right? They, they fail. They do what they are not supposed to do. And all of a sudden, their nakedness becomes an issue. And so they sew fig leaves together. Why? To cover themselves. This is why all of a sudden, they need underwear. Here's what the scripture writers are telling us. Here's what the psalmist is referencing here. He's saying our natural response to failure, our natural response to sin is to cover it, to hide it, to not let it be seen. Instinctively, when you and I encounter sin, sin in ourselves, sin in our lives, sin in our hearts, sin in our minds, our first instinct is to cover it, to hide it. Why? This is not hard. It's embarrassing, isn't it? Because it's humiliating for my sin, for my failings to be made known. I don't want you to see my shortcomings. I don't want you to to see the depth of my imperfections. In fact, I'll work real hard to ensure that you never will. And so we cover. We try to control how people see us. We try to manage our image. We don't want folks to see our sin, and we don't want God to see our sin either. We wear masks, masks, Jim. Yeah, we do. Masks that make us look better, better than we really are. And we see this most obviously in kids, don't we? Maybe you've, you've encountered a situation like this. All of us have had something like this happen. You come home only to discover that the cake with the chocolate frosting has a big chunk missing out of it. And so all of a sudden you're like, "Uh uh-oh. And so you call your four-year-old in. And when he comes in, you ask him, hey, did you eat a chunk out of the cake without asking? And standing there looking you straight in the eye with chocolate frosting all over his face and hands, he'll say, nope, not me. (laughs) Or "Are, are you the one who colored on the wall with the permanent marker, Johnny? No? Well, then why is it that whoever did it wrote your name, (laughs) right? Has this happened to you before? Kid graffiti, and they try to say no, but that's their name, right? You see, that's kids. They don't want us to see their sin. Their instinct is to cover, but they aren't very good at covering yet. Oh, but they'll get better. We all get better. In fact, we are so good at covering that often we don't even see ourselves doing it anymore. We become so adept at covering our sin that we don't even realize that we're doing it. Verse 2 uses the word deceit. Deceit. You see, what the psalmist recognizes here is that in our attempt to cover, it is often ourselves who are deceived. In my attempt to deceive you, in my attempt to deceive God, I myself become deceived. 
So we must not just understand that we are tempted to cover our sin. We must also know how it is we specifically are tempted to do it. Let me, let me give you a list of things that, that people use, that you might use on occasion to cover your sin. Something we use to cover is this thing called blame shifting. You see, we don't want our faults, our sins exposed, and so we blame others. We blame our parents or our coworkers or our boss or our spouse. If you'll remember, this was the very first tactic used in the garden. God comes and says, Adam, tree and the fruit, remember the deal, right? What happened here? And what's Adam say? Oh, that woman is blame shifting, right? Don't look at my sin, look at her sin. How can I cover what I've done wrong? By putting the attention on her, by blaming her. That's one way. The second way is rationalizing it away. Another way we try to cover our sin is by rationalizing our sin. We love to do this with sin. It's not that bad. Everyone else is doing it. It's just part of our world today. We use so many different forms of logic to rationalize our sin right out the door. Another thing we do is we'll focus on the failures of others. Instead of blaming others, we'll just say, don't look at my sin, look at their sin. You see, one of the ways I don't have to deal with my sin, one of the ways I can hide my sin is if I can get you, other people, to not look at my sin, but to look at the sins of other folks. Religious people love to do this. We love to focus on issues and sins that don't hit real close to home for us. See, we love to make those the banner sins, the big sins, the ones that we don't struggle with. Why? It's one of the ways we hide. It's one of the ways we divert attention. It's one of the ways we can not have to look deeply at our own failures and faults. We focus on the sins of others. Another way, and this is especially uh, true and active in our very achievement-focused world, is that we try to achieve our way into sin. We'll achieve in order to hide our sin. This means that you deal with your guilt by saying, look at what I've achieved, look at what I've done. I mean, I may be a sinner, but the size of my sin is small compared to what I've accomplished. You know, compared to who I am and what I've done, this seems fairly insignificant, doesn't it? A lot of times this happens in ministry. We find that that people are incredibly generous with their time or money, not because they're filled with the love and grace of God, but because they are trying, subconsciously trying, to cover up for the sin and failures of their lives. Do you know who does this all the time? Do you know who we see this most like predominantly in? A group of people called pastors. Do you ever wonder why it is so many pastors have trouble with sin? You think like, man, if, you're, if I was going to be a pastor, I'd want to have my life squared away, right? Like, why would you become a pastor if your life is like off track or if you're wrestling with deep, dark, emotional sins? Well, here's why. Because you have this idea in your mind that you can, you can out-achieve your sin. If I can give my life to God, if I can serve Him, if I can be in the ministry, then maybe the sin in my life will start to look smaller. You see, we all have this idea that we can cover our sin through achievement. And then finally, there's the strategy of penance. And and penance is just simply the idea of beating yourself up. Saying, I know I did wrong, but I'm going to show what a good person I actually am. I'm going to cover my sin by making myself miserable. Now this sounds silly, doesn't it? Who would do this? And yet... You find it quite often in churches. So it seems sort of weird, but here's how it works in the subconscious mind. 
You know, even though I failed, even though I've sinned, I must actually be deep down an incredibly moral person or I wouldn't hate myself the way I do. I wouldn't feel this bad about myself and about my sin if I wasn't a good person. So people hide, they try and cover up with penance. Friends, none of these things work. Covering your own sin, however you attempt to do it, the scriptures say it's a death sentence. So how do we truly confess? How do we confess in a way? How do we deal with our sin in a way that leads to the blessed life? Three things. First, the psalmist tells us that we must see our sin. We must truly see our failings. Listen to what the psalmist says. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You see, the psalmist says, covering your own sin will eat away at your life. It's like putting a band-aid over a cut on your arm that's infected. Sure, the band-aid will make it look better for a while, but underneath, inside, you will be corroding and rotting and wasting away. And so what do we do? What do we do instead of covering? We must see our sin and not just the consequences of our sin. You see, this is something that a lot of us confuse. When we talk about sin, some of you are thinking about your sin, but a lot of you, a lot of you are just thinking about the consequences of your sin, the result of your sin. And the scripture says, we've got to take our eyes off the consequences of our sin and get our eyes fixed on our sin itself. This is what it says in verse 9. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. See, the psalmist tells us right away, what keeps the horse or the mule on the right path? Do the horse and the mule stay on the right path, on the trail that you want them to be on, because they know staying on the right path is the right thing? Is that why they're on the right path? No. It's because they so badly want to be in right relationship with their owner that they don't want to do anything to fail or disappoint them. Is that why the horse or the mule stays on the right path? No. Friends, the reason that this horse and this mule, at least in this psalm, stay on the right path is for one reason and one reason only. Consequence avoidance. You see, they don't feel bad about their sin. They feel bad about the consequence of their sin. They don't stay on the path because they want to stay on the right, on the right path. They stay on the path because when they veer to the right or the left, the, the bridle's pulled, the bit digs deep into their, into their tongue. And so to avoid the pain of their sin, they stay on the path. But they're not focused on their, on their sin. They're focused on the result of their sin. You see, it takes the consequence to Redirect them. And the psalmist here says, don't be like them. Don't require the consequence of your sin to direct your path. See your sin for what it is. Let me tell you a story to illustrate this. You see, a lot of times we're more focused on the consequences of our sin than the actual sin itself. When I was in high school, my uh, best friend, a guy by the name of Chris Johnson, threw a party in our home when we were out of town one weekend. I may or may not have given him the garage code. Um, but while we were gone, Chris decided that he was going to have a few people over. And so, um, sure enough, he did. He put word out to a few friends, and they were going to kind of gather and hang out a little bit in our house while we were gone. But then what do you think happened? The thing that always happens with sin, 
it grows. It refuses to be controlled or managed. And the party began to grow. And word got out. And more and more and more people came until our house was packed with people that Chris did not want to be there. In fact, to get rid of all the people who were there partying and destroying our home, another person at the party, possibly my wife, had to make a fake phone call to the police and pretend the police were on their way so that people would vacate the premises. But once everyone was gone, what do you think the status of the house was? It wasn't good. And so Chris worked all night to restore it to its previous form. But when we got home from our vacation, at the end of the weekend, my mother knew that something was up. Well, we got back on a Sunday night and Monday morning early, Chris and I hit the road. We were heading off to a basketball camp. And so we got out of town. Mom was still sort of piecing things together. And while we were at the camp, I got a call from my little brother. And the call said this, mom's on to you. She knows something went down. And when you get home, you are going to be interrogated. And so now Chris and I were panicked. Oh no, we're caught. We're trapped. We're in big trouble. And so we came up with a plan. And here was our plan. Our plan was we would go home and before mom could confront us, we would go to her and we would say, hey, there's something we need to tell you. And we would just cough it up and we would be real honest and we would say, we're so sorry. We did this thing. I gave the garage code. Chris had this gathering, got out of control. It was a complete accident. We are so, so sorry. We confess. And so we went to my mom and we, we executed the plan. And guess what? It worked. It worked great. My mom was like, wow, that was, you boys are... The fact that you just came and confessed it, you know, without having to be caught, that was, and so it worked. It kind of got us off the hook. But what were we most concerned with in that moment? Were we concerned about our sin? Did we see our sin? Or were we just concerned about the consequences of our sin? You see, true confession is never focused on the consequences of our sin. True confession always sees the sin for itself. Why? Because the consequence of the sin is what has hurt you or what could hurt you. But the sin, the sin itself, is what has hurt God or others. You see, when you confess sin and your motivation is the consequence of your sin, it's really just all about you. It's self-pity. It's not understanding the sin from the perspective of others. And I guess the question for you today is, do you see your sin? Do you see what your sin really is? Do you see who your sin's really hurting? Do you see what your sin really looks like to God? Or do you just continue to manage the consequences and potential consequences of your sin? Do you see your sin today? Do you see what it really is? So first, we must see our sin, not just its consequences. Second, we must tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about our sin. This is the pivotal moment of the passage. The psalmist writes, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, that's to God, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You see how emphatic he is here. He says, I acknowledged it. That's the first thing he says. He says, I named it, I spoke it. You see, one thing that helps us see our sin clearly is saying it out loud. Have you ever noticed you can deceive yourself about bad behavior? You can rationalize it. You can justify it in your own mind. You can, you can, you can be in a fight with your spouse and you can just be spinning. I, this is why I act that way and I deserve to act that way and she deserves for me to think that. And da, 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 until you tell your buddy about it. 
And when you tell it to your buddy, when you speak it out loud, all of a sudden you go, that didn't sound as good when I said it as it did in my... In fact, actually, now that I say it, I kind of... I kind of, I'm kind of a jerk, aren't I? Right, yes, right? You see, there's something about speaking our sin out loud, about acknowledging it to God or to another person that makes it real clear. And the psalmist here says, get it on the table. Acknowledge your sin. The other thing he says is, he says, I did not cover up my iniquity. He's saying the cover-up is over. There is nothing hidden anymore. And let me just tell you something about what's being described here. When the psalmist says this, he's saying, this is not vague. You see, one of the greatest enemies, I believe, of real confession, of true confession, is vagueness. We love to be vague when we confess our sins, don't we? And I'll tell you this, vagueness is just one more way of hiding. It is not what this psalmist is speaking about. Here's an example. Sometimes people will talk about their sin and they'll say something like, you know, I've really been struggling with lust lately. And when someone says that, you're kind of tempted to think like, wow, that's really vulnerable. That's really personal, man. No, it's not. Let me tell you why that is not vulnerable or personal at all. Here's why. Everyone struggles with lust. There's not a single person in this room who has not or does not struggle with lust. That is such a vague confession that it has no power. In fact, it just makes you look holy and righteous enough to confess without any of the real pain or honesty of being vulnerable. A real confession would say, no, I'm not just struggling with lust. I've been struggling with porn on my phone. And here are the sites that I've been visiting. And here's how often I've been doing it. That's a real confession. That's ending the cover-up. Now, maybe your issue isn't lust. Maybe your issue is something else. But here's the challenge. Don't be vague in your confession. Vagueness is just one more way of hiding. And then he says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You know what confession is? The word confession in the Bible just means to tell the truth. One of the ways that we praise God is we confess, we tell the truth about who God is. That's part of worship. That's part of praise. And the psalmist here says, confess, tell the truth, not just about God, but tell the truth about you. End the cover up. Put it on the table. Get real. See, we must see our sin and not just its consequences. Then we must tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about our sin. And then finally, we must let God cover our sin. You see, true confession is not rooted in human effort. True confession is not, I know I blew it, but please forgive me because I'm going to try harder next time. That's not confession. That's not where our confessions are supposed to land. In a place where we are going to go, we're going to roll up our our shirt sleeves and pull up our bootstraps and we're going to try harder next time. How many times have you tried that? How many times has it failed? You see, that's not what the psalmist says. The psalmist doesn't say, I'm sorry and now I'll try harder to cover up my own sin. No, the psalmist says, here I am, a sinner and the only person that can cover my sin, God, because it is so great, because it is so strong, because it is so powerful, because I have failed to cover it myself, the only person who can cover it is you. He says, you are my hiding place. You are the one that hides my sin. You're the one that covers me. You see, friends, here's the deal. 
Grace can do something in your soul that effort never will. So you can come and you can confess your sin and you can go back trying harder in your own strength. And the only thing that will ever change is the exterior of your life. The only thing you can ever change is the exterior of your life. But once you've confessed your sin to God, once you've embraced Him as the one who covers you and forgives you, then you experience grace. And grace has the power to change you on the inside in the way that human effort never can. That's why this psalmist says, you are my hiding place. You are the one who forgives. That's why the woman in Luke chapter 7 is a different person than Simon. Not because she tries harder than Simon, but because she has allowed the forgiveness and grace of God to seep into her soul and it has changed her. You see, true confession gives our sin to God and fully lets him cover us because that's when we experience grace. And when we experience grace, the amazing abundant grace of God, that's when we are changed. So don't come to God with a confession that says, I know I was wrong, but I'll do my best next time. Don't come to God with a confession like that. Come to God and say, God, here's my sin. Here are my failings. Here are my shortcomings. You can have them all. And the reason you can have confidence to give God your sin, the reason you can know that you know that you know that he will cover you is because... He exposed himself so that we could be covered. You see, here's the thing about crucifixion. It was one of the most humiliating, exposing forms of torture in the history of the world. We don't really picture this in the church, but most people who were crucified were crucified naked. Completely and utterly exposed. And the God of the universe says... I'll be completely exposed so that I can hide your sin. That's why when we come to the table, we experience grace. We experience a God who took on the exposing nature of our sin so that we could be hidden in him. When we come to the table, we remember the grace that we've, been, that we've received. We remember the powerful grace that has redeemed us and saved us and connected us back again to the Almighty God. And it's that grace that changes us from the inside out. Confession is not about trying harder. Confession is about receiving and being clothed in the grace of God that will change you forever. So this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the table. And I want to challenge you today. Because some of you have got some sin. Some sin in your life that's been rattled around in your mind and heart. Some sin that you've been carrying, managing on your own, trying to cover up for way too long. And I want to encourage you today to stop the cover up, to end the charade, to get real, to come to the table and give God your sin, the dirtiest, nastiest, most vile, shaming parts of you. Because guess what, friends? That's when you'll experience his grace. And one of the ways the scriptures tell us that we experience the grace of God is in each other. As a family, we experience the grace of God together. And we do that through this thing called confession and prayer. So this morning, if you need prayer, if you need prayer for anything, for a sin, for a struggle, for a failure that you've committed or someone else has committed or just 
a failure of this world, if you need sin for anything, we've got people here to pray for you today. We're going to have some folks right here and here and in the corners and then someone will be in the back by the connect room. Take this opportunity. I know that it can be intimidating. Let me just say this. I know that after a, a message on, on confession and sin, it's like, I'm not going up front and everyone will know I'm a sinner. Guess what? We already know you're a sinner. That's the whole point. There should be no safer place in the world to be a sinner than right here in the family of God where the very thing that we gather around is the fact that we are such wretched sinners that we need God to come down and die for our sins. And so if you're ever going to be in a place where it's safe to expose yourself, it's here. It's with these people. It's with this family. It's with this God. And so don't wait. If there's something in your life that you need to deal with, if there's anything in your world that you need prayer for, there are people that would love to pray for you today. There are people that would love to be God's listening, gracious ears for you. And so come, come to the table, take the bread, take the cup. Remember the God who was exposed so that you could be covered. And then receive prayer if you need it. Father, thank you this morning for the fact that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for for covering our sin, for being our hiding place, for calling us into lives that are honest and real and authentic and true so that we can be free from the burden of sin and failure so that we can have the blessed life. God, we want to be a place marked by the blessed life, not marked by always doing the right thing or having the right answers, God, but being a people who understand how deeply and desperately we need you. And so we come to you today. We love you today. We thank you today for grace that we can't even conceive, but that changes our lives. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray it in Christ's name.